Hey, this is Alex Burkett, and you're listening to The Long Game Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Corey Haynes. Corey is the founder of Swipe Files and co-founder of SwipeWell. He's been the head of marketing at companies like Bear Metrics and Savvy Cal, as well as consulting with dozens of startups. He's currently writing a book on SaaS marketing called Founding Marketing that will be released in 2024. In this conversation, we discuss in-depth programmatic SEO and the nuts and bolts of how he's using it at SwipeWell. We also talked about a real definition, a real definition of media marketing and why SaaS companies should think like a media company, not be one or build one. And of course, I asked Corey a ton of questions about productivity because he's seemingly doing just an absolutely insane amount of things. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Corey Haynes. I wanted to start the discussion uh, with a strange question. So this isn't going to be involved with anything you're currently working on, but more of a character trait. So you mentioned on, I think it was your your website or your user manual. I can't remember which one, that you're an Enneagram 3. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. So I'm curious. Probably not uncommon for uh, people that work in tech, especially like marketing and sales or, you know, more of those like entrepreneurial type of folks. Well, that's what I was curious about. It's like, uh, I've done reflections on how it may have impacted, like how I run a company and how I kind of operate, mm. but how, have you reflected on how this being an Enneagram three influences your strengths as an entrepreneur and more interestingly, your weaknesses? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. I mean, I, I think the, the two highest that I scored in were Enneagram three and then Enneagram one. Um, the three is more like the achiever, right? It's sort of like you're motivated by uh, production by output, by having something to show for at the end of the day, um, by climbing the mountain, by finishing the thing that you set out to do. Right. So it's, it's very like, um, kind of like task oriented, but it's, I think it works for someone like me also, who's very optimistic and a little bit more visionary in a sense where I'm always kind of planning for the future and thinking of new ideas and wanting to kind of like live in the future. Essentially, I'm just always trying to get to some other milestone or goal or place in life uh, later down the road. Um, the reason why I also uh, kind of sympathize with the Enneagram one is the, the one is a little bit more of like the, um, like the, the selfless kind of uh, what's the word I was looking for. Um, more like the person, you know, that wants to like, serve and um they're more like mission oriented that's the word i'm looking for hmm. and uh, i definitely have a lot of that as well where it's not just about like me 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 i want to achieve but it's a little bit more like well what is this all for and kind of like the the greater good and the the bigger picture beyond me um but anyways the the strengths i think the entrepreneurial side like you know it, it works for someone who's very uh autonomous who knows what they want to do and just wants to go after it and, and get it done. The weaknesses, one of the big things that I've found is that for a three, when you're not doing those, like when you're not feeling like you're getting things done all the time, then it can be a very unmotivating period. And you're more mm -hmm. prone to like um, um, uh, burnout. You're more prone to um, maybe just kind of like delaying things, procrastinating um, juggling too many things at one time, which I'm totally guilty of because you want to like, you're always chasing that next kind of achievement. So when something is taking a long time and you can't really get that, then you tend to like find it in other areas, um, or you just kind of skip out it all altogether. So that's been something I have to, I've had to learn. It's like, 
okay, just because this thing isn't done yet, there's still you can still enjoy the process of doing the thing instead of just the dopamine rush of having done the thing. And that's the thing I've been try, trying to to learn and improve to make it not so much of a weakness for myself. Yeah, yeah. For for me, I've a hundred percent felt that same thing. Uh, that that driven, like you need a goal, you need a mission, you need something to aim for, step by step. And I think the other piece of this maybe is like the the Enneagram three. I believe also loves recognition and validation and kind of like external validation. Yep. So mm-hmm. that's something that I'm, I'm you know kind of working on. Um, but I remember for a time at HubSpot, I was kind of bored. Like I just feel like I wasn't stretched and I didn't have that kind of focus. I now at the agency, it's like I have this singular mission and I can get all of the Mm -hmm. juice from that. But I started to get really into fitness. Like I was like, Mm. you know, cutting and bulking and like, it was, it was so like progression wise, it was so clear because you could see like the pounds on the scale or the pounds that you're putting on the bar and in the gym and all of that stuff. But I remember for a period of a year and a half, I was like, that was my autonomous, um, area that I could actually, uh, you know, like fulfill that Enneagram three need. And I've actually started to like lean, like I know it's, it can be a weakness, but I've actually started to accept that and be like, okay, I just need healthy outlets for this. It's probably not going to go away entirely, but it's one of those things that if I leverage it correctly, I can actually use it. And, you know, it's like knowing your nature, like what makes you happy versus like trying to fit into somebody else's box. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why try to be someone that you're not, that's just kind of like the inherent nature of being a three is you're going to have these tendencies, which can be weaknesses in certain areas. My thing is like, I need to either kind of compensate in another area so that that thing doesn't become like an, an Achilles heel for me, where it just kind of kills everything that I do. It doesn't like hold me back in any way, but I'm not going to try to change that about myself. Like that would just be, you know, um, it's a, it's a fruitless, it's a pointless thing to try to do. It's just never going to change. Right. How am I going to change myself and the way that I'm wired inside? Right. Right. So on that point, it seems like you're working on an insane, staggering amount of projects. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm yeah, curious yeah. about the things you're working on, but also more so how you manage your time. Like, how do you manage your energy? Mm-hmm. Um, the short answer is, I mean, it's not rocket science. I pretty much just only try to work on deep work types of things, like very minimal meetings, very minimal emails. Um, I hate, I'm like allergic to admin type of work even pretty minimal like Slack messages. I really just like being in my own lane, giving clear direction, you know, following up in the areas that I need to, and then just getting to work. Now that makes you sound like, oh, I'm just like a, a workhorse and like a machine. That's not actually true. It's more that like, I need to give myself that space in order to actually be productive. Because what I found is if I have like three or four meetings scattered throughout the day, I'm just not going to get anything meaningful done outside of those meetings within those gap periods. And so I need like full days or long stretches of hours to really be able to crank through things. Cause otherwise I'm just thinking about the next meeting or unloading from the last meeting. I'm an introvert for sure. And so any meeting kind of takes some energy out of me. Um, so I try to batch most of my meetings on Wednesdays, uh, which is the day that we're meeting here today. Mm-hmm. Some of my meetings ended up being on, you know, Mondays, uh, maybe a meeting here or there will pop up on a Tuesday or a Thursday, but it'll be like one at the most. Fridays are always completely kind of my time um, to have whatever loose ends that I need to. And at the beginning of the week, I literally I make a list. Uh, you can see my list right here. Uh, it's on a UgMonk analog. Nice. Exposure is a little bit crazy. Yeah. But it's literally just a written list of like, what do I want to do for the week? And these are like high leverage projects, like things that 
only I can do things that I'm going to have something to show for things. I'm going to feel that dopamine rush when I feel like I've you know done them and I've achieved them. I've conquered the, the task. And uh, I just kind of pull that list from my list of notion. I have like a master notion board of here's all the different projects and tasks associated with them. What needs to be done now? I kind of use the Eisenhower matrix of uh, you know urgent and important, and just try to really pick off of like the most important and sometimes the most urgent, and work through the list on a weekly basis. Um, and that, that's kind of it. Like I'm really really bad at email. I don't. Mm-hmm. I only have like a a filter for primary and unread. And if I I'll like go through my other tabs and I'll just kind of make sure that something you know that should belong in my primary unread isn't in there but otherwise like i don't respond to a lot of emails um i don't email people like i'm, I'm mainly just kind of using it as like a uh you know a coordination tool for anything mm. hey we have this meeting coming up or a follow-up from an email uh, from a meeting something like that but it's not like a communication tool for me whatsoever Right, right. Do you, with that list that you make every week, do you have any like daily functions? Do you try to do like the one thing or like every day when you sit down, do you like try to conquer one of those depending on like the theme of the day or like how do you break it down daily? No, that would probably be helpful. I don't know. That that could be an area that I could be working on. I mainly just work on like, what do I feel an appetite for, for that Mm -hmm. day? So sometimes I feel more excited about certain types of tasks and projects than than others for whatever reason, um, or I kind of start to feel feel the pressure, and I know um, you know I need to get to get this done by X date this week, and so I'm going to start working on it now and then start chipping away at it. But um, honestly, there isn't really any rhyme or reason to it. I kind of just work on what's exciting. Yeah, yeah, driven by your energy. Yeah, and of course, not everything gives me a lot of energy, but I just try to work on the things I have the most energy for first. Um, because that way I'm not dragging my feet even more on the things that I don't have energy for thinking about the things that I actually do want to be working on instead. Yeah, man. It's so, it's so funny. Like how, like back to the Enneagram three stuff, like knowing your nature is so important is I'll find like seemingly easy tasks that once I do them, I'm like, that took like two minutes. Why did this feel so painful? But it's Mm -hmm. like a lot of the admin stuff We, we were talking before, you know, I'm moving to New York city. The decision to move was very exciting the shopping for apartments was thrilling and stressful. But now that I've like gotten to place, it's like all of the little things like, Oh, like how do I like coordinate with the moving company or like sell this piece of furniture or like all of those little things, which actually aren't that hard. Like it's, yeah. it's genuine. Like it's the right. information's out there. I could chat GPT, this stuff. <laughs> I could pick up the phone, but like for me, like those are the items that sit on my to-do list yep. almost indefinitely or like reviewing Same. a contract or sending an email or stuff like that. And it's like, I don't know, coming up with a system to at least compensate for those weaknesses while prioritizing the things that actually drive you forward and that you're specifically good at. Mm-hmm. Oh, I feel the exact same way. It's all the little minutia that ends up holding me back the most. It's the like really big, scary, kind of ambitious projects that I'll just like crank out in a couple of hours. And I'll just, you know, whip it out in no time. I'm thinking about it at night at 11 o'clock before I go to bed. I'm writing notes on my phone and I'm researching things. I'm on Ahrefs on my phone, you know, doing random keyword research. Like that type of stuff is the most exciting and like the most life-giving part of it. It's the little things more on the more on the operational like execution side, which is kind of ironic. Like wish it, I honestly wish it wasn't that way. I feel like my life would be easier if I just loved spreadsheets and getting the details and just, you know, putting my head down and getting that stuff done. But it's the more the like, like zero to one type of things that um, I find more fun and exciting. Yeah. You and me both. So what are the main things you're working on now? Swipe files, 
Swipe well. Swipe well. I also have a full-time job on the head of marketing for a software company, um, back in the full-time seat. I was doing a lot of consulting before, and I just kind of found that that was spreading me too thin, even though like the goal of doing more consulting was to allow me to spend more time on my side projects so that that would then become hopeful full-time projects. Um, but I found that you know, managing a client and all the comments that come with that, tracking your hours, giving yourself work to do was actually more work than just having a regular job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, there's significantly more admin work than you would imagine with clients. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was great. Like my mainstay client was a company called Savvy Cal, working with Derek, the founder. Um, man, we had a really awesome working relationship and achieved a ton together, like a ton. Having to talk about any of those, but uh, back in the full-time seat so that I can kind of like have some stability and work on swipe files, which is maybe just, I mean, honestly, it's on autopilot. Like I just, it's a lot of writing. It's a lot of content creation. There's not a lot to that. Again, I'll, I'll feel inspired about something. I was cranking out in a couple of hours mm-hmm. and then kind of that's my work for the week. It's swipe well, which is my SaaS side project that's taking the most mind share these days and the more, the most strategy and the most anxiety <laughs> or how to do, how to, you know, ramp things up and, and grow. Um, that's kind of my, my focus for these days. Can you explain quickly uh, what what each one does or what the premise is? Yeah, so swipe is it is kind of confusing because of the names, which uh, we might do something about it eventually. But swipe files originally started as a weekly teardown of a marketing example from me, and then turns out people just want to hear what I have to say about SaaS marketing, so it became my SaaS marketing newsletter and the membership that has like some courses and other training material inside. Swipe well is our SaaS tool that's a Chrome extension. It makes it really easy. It's like a one-click tool for screenshots, save landing pages, emails, ads, to help you build a swipe file, uh, which is essentially like a digital repository or library of um, inspiration for you to use within your job. Um, so one's a SaaS tool, one's like a newsletter, but um, the names are a little bit more like descriptive <laughs> than I would like. Do you find, um, I know that uh, you said swipe files is a little bit more on aut- autopilot, but I, you've been doing that for longer, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So about, I don't know um, if it's about three years now. I don't know if it's a function of like how long you've been doing it or like if swipe well is newer, but like, do you, like, is, is one mode more difficult for you than the other? Like one sounds more content focused. The SAS sounds more code focused. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering yeah. about the relative difficulty for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, with swipe files, since I've been doing it for longer, I have so much more built up. Like, honestly, it could be my full time thing. It's just I wouldn't know what to do if I was if that was my full time job because there's just only so many things I can write about and talk about on a weekly basis. Um, and so, like the the newsletter, I think I have maybe over 130 newsletter editions now. Um, I have three different courses. There's a lot of different kind of random training material that's inside. Um, it does a lot of revenue for like sponsorships and revenue affiliates. There's a job board associated with it as well. So again, it just feels like, okay, this thing is taking on a life of its own and I'm more just kind of helping to steer it and keep it chugging along and refuel it. With Swipe Well, we're so early on, we've been working on it for uh, just over a year now, very much startup mode. Um, you know, the first like six months working on a SaaS is mainly just like, product management and product development, trying to figure out what do we build and how do we get this thing into people's hands. And so the last six months have been more the focus on, all right, now we actually need to get users and customers. And that for me has been the most exciting part because now I get to actually 
go and do all the things that I've been doing for other companies, but for my own now. Um, so we're ramping up some some content things. Um, we've done some programmatic SEO. Uh, we're trying to ramp up some, some affiliates, some partnerships. I go on podcasts, um, some cross promotion between swipe files as well. But um, like these days, most of the like content creation that I'm doing is more for swipe well uh, right now. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about the synergies between those two. It sounds like, I mean, it's swipe files to me sounds like it could be like the media marketing arm of swipe well. Right? It totally it's, could. Yeah. 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 The only like caveat is that, you know, Swipe Files is very focused on like SaaS marketing, people just looking for, you know, director of marketing or founder or CEO at a SaaS company. Whereas Swipe Well obviously is much broader than that, where in fact, our main kind of target audience is more like agency owners and um, freelance copywriters, because they're the ones that use inspiration and Swipe Files the most, kind of like the power user persona that we have. And so, there's not as much synergy as I would I was as I would like, but there's still a lot, especially like a great base to pull from for our initial kind of building momentum and getting early feedback and um, just having a lot of friends in the space who I can ask to hop on a call and help me test things and give me feedback. What are you doing for programmatic SEO? So back in July, um, I was like, I need to be our biggest power user. I'm gonna start, I'm gonna build like the most comprehensive. Uh, library of marketing examples out there. So I literally spent a month just like sleuthing the internet and going through vintage ads, SaaS competitor comparison pages, uh, onboarding emails, like everything you can imagine. Basically, I think it was over kind of 200 different collections or categories of marketing examples that I was swiping and building a swipe file for. And then I thought, well, what what can I do with this? So I asked my co-founder Connor. I was like, hey, can we? Could we like publish these as pages on our site and basically like turn my database, like my uh, my own account, into kind of like a public swipe file of sorts? And he's like, "Oh yeah, for sure." Like, I mean, it's all like everything lives on the site, and we have, like we use uh, Next.js to kind of generate our own you know marketing site. So like, it's basically all within the app itself, uh, anyways. And so then I started doing some keyword research and realized that I could totally orient all these things I had swiped, like over 6,000 kind of items, over 200 categories, uh, and basically like map them to all these different keywords, like, you know, SaaS landing pages, D2C landing pages, marketing agency landing pages. And then you take that for a bunch of different kind of head keywords, like landing pages, ads, hmm. emails, pop ups, and then all the different variations of that. And I was like, this sounds a lot like programmatic SEO. And I had been familiar with it, but I just never done it at a company before, really, you know, been in the seat driving that forward. And so I started reading a couple of articles and I was like, oh, wow, this is actually <laughs> the perfect opportunity. And so, um, you know, rejiggered kind of all the titles, the formatting, did some reorganization of like where things should belong. And then uh, we basically just, again, use our own, like my own account to populate pages targeting a keyword variation. Uh, so the, the, the kind of there's a head term and then there's a variant and then there might be like another variant. Um, so that's how we structured a URL. It'd be like landing pages slash SAS and then it'd be like ads slash SAS and then it'd be emails mm -hmm. slash SAS. And that allows us to really break up and um, it's all under the marketing examples library. So we have over 200 pages generated um, targeting every one of these 
keywords that are exactly uh, a good match. You know, SaaS landing pages, D2C landing pages. Just go down the 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 list and it spans the gamut. Um, and it was all just kind of populated all at once because that's the magic of being programmatic. Is you're not you know writing words. You're generating pages based off of structured data in a sense. And um, so we're slowly creeping up in the ranks. But um, that was a you know it took a long time to get that up and running. But it was all based on my own account and Swipewell. What I find fascinating is that you I, you seem to have done it the opposite way that most brands do, which I've I've been loosely involved in some programmatic SEO projects. And usually the way it works is you are expanding from your existing core channels and you're trying to find net new opportunities, higher ceilings. So you start with the opportunity, which usually is represented by keyword research and some sort of an impact audit. And then you find the content, but right. you had the content and then you stumbled into the opportunity, which mm-hmm. I think is better because a lot of the times programmatic SEO seems to fail because the content lacks depth. It's one of those mm-hmm. things where you're like, oh, we have all of this opportunity. There's 200,000 search volume. We could convert users directly from this, spin up a bunch of landing pages that are totally thin, nothing differentiated, and then the project fails. But yeah. if you've got the content, that, that seems like a better position to be in. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think the important thing too is like, a lot of people just come, you know, when they think of programmatic SEO, they probably think of the, the example that's been touted the most, which is Zapier with their mm-hmm. integration pages. That's just one example. And to be honest, I feel like that's the the worst example of programmatic SEO because, well, at least for for like B2B SaaS companies, because a lot of other, uh, we might call them SaaS companies, maybe just tech companies in general, um, have been using programmatic SEO forever. Companies like um, Zillow and... Yeah, exactly. There's a bunch of these, you know, Airbnb, um, a lot of these like uh, uh, product curation and product review sites. Um, and uh, so Zapier has kind of followed that a little bit more closely where program SEO is like an output of just the way that their product worked in the first place, people searching for an integration. You can't take that strategy and plug that into your own company because that's just not going to work. No one's searching for integrations related to your products and Zapier's going to eat your lunch anyways. So what is your version for your product um, that'll work for you? And I found like templates is a good kind of broad category of like, this is broadly applicable to a lot of different type of companies like um, form builders and um, website builders. And uh, you know, a lot of the kind of builders type of tools, Canva design tools, um, things like that. You also have conversions, um, we also had a really fun experiment with SavvyCal where we did time zone conversions. Um, but we've seen that across a lot of other things across like, you know, WISE does currency conversions. Um, you might have like different countries. Uh, so you're kind of like, you know, even language conversions, Duolingo, things like that. Um, I've also found comparisons to be a really good one, even mm-hmm. like competitor comparisons, because you can kind of split out like, okay, what are the pros and cons, strengths and weaknesses of each of them? And then just mix and match those modules to create pages of, you know, us versus them or competitor one versus competitor two versus competitor three in a really programmatic way. And then you have curation. I think we Swipeable is mostly follow the curation playbook, which is like, what is a type of content that we're going to curate and then just split it up and organize it in a way that's conducive for programmatic SEO. So we've taken, you know, ads, landing pages, screenshots, but you might also find again, um, I don't know, products. It could be um other types of content like uh like 
pitch decks or videos, you know, again, the list goes on and on. How much uh, custom content creation or editing goes into this stuff outside of the programmatic aspects? Like when you mentioned the comparisons and if you had like, say, HubSpot versus Marketo, HubSpot versus MailChimp, HubSpot versus ActiveCampaign, mm -hmm. I have to imagine that that HubSpot description would have to change on each of those pages. Otherwise, it's going to be sort of a duplicate content yeah. or like thin content type thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it helps a lot. Like a lot of people don't think about the way to start, like you kind of start with the page itself. How do you think that the page should be structured in a way that is really informative for the reader? Of course, answers all the questions and queries is going to like hit all the kind of on page things that you need to actually rank for the keyword, but then literally map it out in like a wireframe on the page and you'll find, okay, these pieces are going to be um, reusable blocks across any other page. And then these pieces are going to be unique to this page. And then that also allows you to further split it out and say, okay, for this page, these are the pieces that we need to fill in the customize. And now we can have like a custom blurb about, uh, you know, I think like intercom, there was the drift versus the intercom page that was pretty famous about, you know, they just have this like block of text right in the top of the page. It's kind of just like, hey guys, like here's our approach. Um, we think intercom's great, but if you're this type of person, and you can redo that for every one of your competitors, but then you go down the list and you just do kind of your checklist style comp comparison, and that's going to be reusable across any other competitor, right? Mm. Um, so I think it's it's actually pretty scalable to to mix. Like everything doesn't have to be these completely reusable programmatic blocks. You can also have customizable blocks. And um, some parts that are even maybe unique to the page, we just kind of like add it in. Um, you know, I, I use, we use Webflow a bunch um, and I've used Webflow for some other programmatic experiments. And Webflow is really great for just like, turn this part on for these pages, turn this off for those pages, filtering. Mm -hmm. And like, you literally just have like a checkbox, like include or not include. And that allows you to like customize a page without um, like adding in a new, you know, uh, you know, basically like a new heading or a new section of a page manually. You can just click a box within the CMS. This is like a custom object of sorts where it's like yeah. you you write it, you create it centralized, and then you can kind of like use it in a, a modular way throughout like whatever pages on the site. Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. And you can you can map CMS um collections together. So that's you have like these relational databases of sorts, right? And now it's not just, well here's one database that I'm organizing in our very um, you know, binary way of yes, no, yes, no, is this included or not? But it's now it's related to another database and even a third database for things like tags or filters or other things that allows you even more flexibility for the pages you can create. Do you think generative AI is going to to dilute the value of programmatic SEO because everybody's going to yeah mass create just like spammy type pages now that it's it's more functionally possible? Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's a nice little like hack and shortcut for, you know, those little short customizable pieces that you want to include and you just need to kind of whip something up quickly. Personally, I don't know about you. I've been using generative AI for like more like rewriting um, my content yeah, rather than like coming up with the content in general. And so that's also been my approach too, is like, instead of me just copying and pasting the same blurb across all these different ones, I'll have generative AI like go through and kind of customize it and just have a different version for each one so that it's a little bit more unique. But um, yeah, I mean, it's probably a little bit inevitable that it's just going to water everything down. 
Um, but also increases like it makes the bar higher. So when you do, you know, when you do hurdle that bar, then it's noticeable. That's the thing with everything else though. It's like programmatic SEO is the obvious use yeah. case, but then it's also like stuff people share on LinkedIn. Like it's going to be a lot of chat GPT content there, which just makes it more valuable when you create something unique and novel and like, you know, specific to you. Same right. thing with blogging. It's going to be one of mm-hmm. those things where if everybody can click a button, create content, they will, but that's going to dilute any competitive advantage among those people who are doing that. So it's like yeah. the ones who will rise to the top are going to be the ones who have that little extra special sauce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I actually think like, if I really think about programmatic SEO type of content versus kind of editorial thought leadership type of content, I think that the editorial thought leadership is more at risk for um, this kind of copycat generative AI, really diluted bland content than programmatic SEO. Cause the programmatic type of content is inherently more cut and dry and factual. And it's more about, well, what am I curating? What am I creating that is modular and a little bit more structured in a way that there's no there's no point in even trying to use generative AI to do this thing, right? I'm just kind of um, organizing data that I already have. I don't need AI to generate it for me. I'm just going to go and structure it in a way that's conducive for you know programmatic content, right? So um, in that sense, it's maybe less at risk. It's more about like, the execution and the customization of that content if you want to raise the bar even further. Yeah. Do you think, are there any uh, technical foundational underpinnings that need to be in place in order to make programmatic SEO work? I would assume a certain domain rating or, or backlinks would, would have to be present, internal yeah. linking, yeah, stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think page structure, things like, um, like you need all of your on-page SEO stuff to just be on point. I mean, we found a bunch of different issues when we first launched the, we call it the marketing examples library within Swipewell, um, where we we're finding, okay, we need to have like a really good, uh, you know, sitemap. We need to um, submit our XML, you know, file multiple times. We need to request to be indexed multiple times. We need to get rid of our 404s. We need to fix this. We need to fix that. Like, there's just a lot of things you have to really button up in order to give yourself the best chance of ranking. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's also the thing. Like, Swipewell is brand new. I mean, our domain rating was probably like a 10 <laughs> when we launched mm. it. And so for me, it was also an experiment like, hmm, how successful can this be with a really low domain rating? Um, since then, it's it's grown and I've done some active kind of link building uh, campaigns in order to try to, to beef that up. But it's for sure caps. Like I think our domain rating now is maybe like a 35 or something is still not high whatsoever. We're getting close to that more like authoritative um, threshold, but um, it's definitely going to be limited. It's going to be capped unless there's just like zero competition whatsoever for whatever the keywords that you are, they're ranking and the content is just absolute garbage. Um, mm. We felt like the reality is for, for swipe. Well, you know, SAS landing pages, that keyword is pretty competitive. There are other pages that do a good job of curating content so again, the bar is higher for us to have to compete. So yeah, of course, domain rating and backlinks and all the on-page SEO details are going to be more important in that scenario. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I feel like programmatic SEO is on one side of the spectrum. This is a very performance. This is a growth marketers kind of thing. And then one thing that you mentioned on the intake forum and on your website was mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that you believe SaaS companies should aim to do marketing like media companies. So I yeah. look at that as almost the other end of the spectrum where it's it's a little bit less 
direct attribution, direct last, you know, last click oriented. It's a little bit more brandy. For me, it's a little more wishy-washy. Um, so one, mm-hmm. I would love to have you explain to me <laughs> why you think Mark or SaaS company should do the media company thing. And two, if you're, if you're including anything like that in your plans, uh, to kind of balance that portfolio for swipe well from the, the pure programmatic conversion oriented to the brand side, if, if mm-hmm. you believe in that dichotomy. Mm-hmm. No. Oh, totally. And um, I love the question. So I, I phrased it very, I was very, very carefully. It's marketing like a media company. It's not make a media company and that is your your marketing team. Because that's totally the mistake. And the, the first thing that people think about is, oh, well, I have to hire journalists and and YouTubers and we need to be like, we, we have to make it an entirely separate brand. It's like, no, no, no. Market like a media company. Think like a media company. Do marketing as if you were a media company. Because really what I mean by that is two things. You're, think about your content like it's the product that you sell. So if you're a media company, what is it that you sell? Well, you're really selling ad slots on content, but your content has to be so good to, in order to get eyeballs to those ad spots, right? So really what you produce, what the thing is that you sell is content. Your content has to have a high bar. It has to be the thing that you're really focused on. And I see content as the cornerstone of every marketing strategy uh, and really just marketing as a whole. I think that's the core of what marketing is. Content is so many different things. It's entertainment, it's educational, um, <clears throat> it's fun, it's inspiring. It's the the brand look, it's the brand voice. It's the representation of your company more broadly, right? Sales is that relational, personal, one-to-one representation of the company. Marketing is the one-to-many representation of the company. There's no better way to do that than through content. Now, the second part of that, of what it looks like to market like a media company, is think about who is at the core of a media company. And it's media personalities. It's the people creating the content themselves. So this is one of the other things is people think, well, oh, if I'm going to market like a media company, then I'll just go and hire a bunch of freelance writers and we'll just create a bunch of content and I'll just outsource everything, video, audio, you know, written, et cetera, et cetera. Well, at that point, you're 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 missing the point because the point is not just prolific output. The point is who it's coming from. It's to build authority, it's to build trust. It's to become a destination for people where they're not just thinking through, I'm not going to, you know, um, I'm not going to read any old blog. I'm going to listen to any old podcasts. I'm going to read or listen to the, to the content from people that I know and trust and who I want to listen to. Um, so again, I mean, this is why some of the cornerstone examples of marketing like a media, like a media company are um, HubSpot acquiring the hustle. Uh, I think Wistia is a fantastic example. ProfitWell has done a fantastic job. Um, but even companies like um, Coinbase, I would say, is one of them. Mm. Um, there's been uh, quite a few other SaaS companies that have started to make these inroads where you're really putting people on a pedestal to represent the company as these larger-than-life personalities. They're the people authoring the content. They're the ones showing up on the podcast. They're the ones doing the interviews. And they're becoming someone trustworthy. You're trying to make someone kind of famous in a small circle, right? Mm -hmm. Or even a group of people. Drift did did this really exceptionally well, you know, kind of, you know, they were the the pioneers. So of course, I say it's 2020 for what they were doing, but they had multiple people. I mean, 
Dave Gerhardt's original attention for the Seeking Wisdom podcast was for it to just, just be a um, an outlet for David Cancel because David didn't have time to go and write blog posts and things like that. So he's like, okay, let's just hop on a podcast and start recording. And then became this phenomenon that also helped elevate Dave, Dave Gerhardt as the marketing thought leader, which serves really well for you know MarTech like Drift. So he's creating LinkedIn videos and he's going to other podcasts and they're expanding the podcast network. And then they're bringing other people like Maggie Crawley, who's their product manager turned podcast host. And again, more like the product, you know, kind of the, um, the product thought leader for the more technical audience of Drift, more like product managers and growth PMs and even just developers who are the ones implementing uh, Drift at the back end, right? So they're expanding their audience, but they're also, again, they're becoming a destination for people. So when you treat content like a product and you have great people who are being elevated, creating that content, now you're marketing like a media company. And we can get to all the nuances of that, but like that's the core of what I mean when I say yeah, yeah. market like a media company. You opened up a bunch of avenues for me here. This is I'm really interested in the passion and in what you were talking about. Mainly the the point that I want to make is that I'm big on like the who behind the content. I think that's going to be incredibly important, especially in the AI era. But even before then it was like who, like the trust that you'd built up. So we've been calling this thing, uh, decentralized content. And essentially instead of, um, centralizing everything on the blog, maybe having a byline that is like company team, (laughs) right? Like you do build individual thought leaders. Uh, they distribute their content effectively through social, through YouTube, whatever the kind of channel of choice is, right. But you're enabling them via your platform, and I think that's incredibly effective right now. Um, we've seen that with Drift. We've seen that with Gong. We've seen that with a ton of agencies and consulting firms. The thing is, uh, there's two things I worry about. Um, mm-hmm. And this is coming from somebody who believes in this. I believe it's effective. Mm-hmm. One is the inherent chaos of trying to build and con- contain kind of like brand points of view messaging. Because a lot of the effectiveness of marketing seems to come from repetition and really honing in on a message as opposed to having mm-hmm. like kind of multiple nodes speaking about different things. And the other thing, this is probably a silly thing to worry about, but when the person that you've built up leaves, yeah, there's not as much compounding value like you would get with say SEO or something that kind of like, it, you know, if, if a writer leaves HubSpot's blog, like they, the HubSpot blog still capitalizes on the work that they put in. Whereas when Dave leaves Drift, it's, it's like, does, does Dave's value still lend mm-hmm. to drifts marketing efforts and like mm-hmm. you know i had that with i guess this is different but like when i was at cxl i felt like that was a very good platform for me to build my own voice and thought leadership and people started to read my columns they still get the seo juice from that so i, th- I think like mm-hmm. that value is still there <laughs> but i i wonder you know it's like if you're building up social thought leaders on linkedin and and maybe a podcast like when they leave is that a risk so i guess those right. are the two things and i don't know how you think about those mm-hmm. um both totally valid uh, absolutely. So on the first one, um, I think that one of the things that I've realized that I've had to step into this role myself is you absolutely need an editor type of role. That person can be the director of marketing. It could be like your content marketing manager. It could even be someone else. I don't know. It, it could be anyone that you feel has the um, the control and the opinion and the bandwidth to take all these different people creating disparate types of content and run it through a filter, a singular filter, which should be an editor. Um, so I found that running that through one person who can kind of be like the the brand voice 
keeper, the content keeper of sorts works really well. Cause yeah, again, like you said, otherwise things start to get a little bit out of control. Um, you do need to rein people in and say, well, that was a cool idea for content, but that's not really conducive for the people that we want to, to reach or the types of things that we sell in our business. Um, so why don't we refocus it back over here, right? So you, you definitely have to have some guidelines and then keep people within those guidelines. So I think having an editor is absolutely critical. Um, and I talk about you know ways that you can market like a media company when you just want to crawl versus walk versus run. Everyone wants to start running immediately, but they don't even have like the resources um, to go and execute on that. And most of the time, they don't even have the resources to walk either. To me, what it looks like to crawl is you have like one person who becomes kind of the face of content or the person you want to put up on the pedestal. And you're choosing like one other main content outlet. And then when you're walking, you might have one person, two people, three people across one to three different channels. And then when you're running, you might have a lot more. And at that point, running really requires that editor role. But you can get away without it for a while if you're not at that point yet. On the second point, um, I'm sorry, remind me what it was. Uh, this was about... more so the risk of, of somebody leaving. Oh, yeah. So right. if you've gotten used to like Dave Gerhardt's voice at Drift and he moves on to Privy or does his own thing, like do you does Drift still get the value of like building up mm-hmm. that voice within the company? Mm-hmm. Um, the short answer is no. And that's kind of just the reality of it. If you've done such a good job that losing them is uh, would be a big, a big hit to the company, then like try to keep them. <laughs> I yeah. don't know what to tell you, but it's like you know you think about again marketing like a media company, treat your content like it's a product, um, and then build up people to become personalities creating that content. Well, think about news anchors and think about reporters and journalists. Um, think about anyone within a traditional media company who is doing a really good job, they end up creating a lot, a lot of leverage for themselves to stay within that company because they're both incentivized to keep doing what they're doing because it's working so well. Um, and so I think that, yeah, it's a question of retention. Um, if that person wants to leave, why do they want to leave? Well, can you offer something better for them to allow to, themselves to keep growing and keeping incentivized to have that mutually beneficial relationship for that content within your company? If not, then you have to go. And now you need to start building up the next person. Um, of course, it always helps to have kind of a, a pipeline of maybe next people in line. Again, that might be a luxury for people at the run stage and who have a very large team and a lot of amazing talent to draw from. But uh, yeah, the reality is, I think it's more just a question of, it is a bummer if people leave. How can you keep them if they try to leave? You know, Think ahead. How can you incentivize them to, to keep going? I think about people at, at the hustle. Uh, you know, you had this kind of like hustle crew that came out uh, with like Steph Smith and Trunk Fan and Alex mm-hmm. Garcia, even a couple of other people that I know got amazing jobs elsewhere and sort of are even just now kind of building up their social presence. And um, yeah, maybe they could have gotten done a better job of keeping those folks. I don't know if they've really felt the the losses of them. Um, they've all gone on to them to do great things, but maybe that it could could have kept doing great things within the hustle and HubSpot. I don't know. 
I think that's the game though. I think it's one of those things where like you, you, that's the tax you pay in this modern environment. Cause yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, or I don't exactly remember when this happened, but there was a debate within news organizations. There was a debate, uh, you know, with the Atlantic and New York times and companies like that, where the old model was to sort of subsume the identities of the writers and the, the uh, voices under the brand. Right. Mm-hmm. When social came out, it was like, there was a, a disincentivization from, you know, the, the brands themselves where they were saying, you know, like, I don't want you to build your own platform, but mm. that became the effective model. So it's like, now everybody's doing it. And it's like, now yeah. the Atlantic, I read the Atlantic for Derek Thompson's columns or Arthur C. Mm. Brooks. Like I know the authors and right. if they go to Substack because that's better for them and their future, I'm probably going to go read them there as well. And that's just yep. inherently how we, most of us look at these, these media companies now. So I feel like I, I do agree with you. It's 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 maybe not ideal for the brand, but yeah. it's like you can't bend the universe to your will just because it's yeah. not in your favor. The the current way that consumers consume information. Mm-hmm. I will say I mean, the the one big caveat, I mean the the way to get around this, where you can have your cake and eat it too, is to focus most of that attention on someone within the the founding team or lead, or leadership team. Um, it's just going to be it's going to work the best most long-term when it's the founder, CEO, CTO, uh, chief, whoever, VP of whatever. Um, because again, those people are more bought in long-term anyways. There is less risk of them leaving. So yeah, if you had your druthers and you had your choice between who can we help build up to be these media personalities, my first choice would always be someone within the senior leadership team. They're also the keepers of the messages and they often have implicit unspoken points of view um, that people who are new to the company definitely aren't going to have, which is maybe where that centralization risk that I talked about before comes in. But mm-hmm. we're doing this thing now as part of our strategy engagements, uh, You know, in addition to the keyword research and the typical models with SEO agencies, we're doing what we call a brand POV exercise. And it's essentially trying to map out like the themes, the villains, and the uh, angles of your brand. So these map mm. down from like the positioning. It's not quite a style guide. It's really like like what people are talking about in your industry and what your take is on those things. Um, and what I found is getting the CEO or the founder in the room is a huge value because otherwise oh, yeah. everybody's sort of trying to guess what the, <laughs> they're trying to guess what the CEO would say, but it's when, when it's straight from their mouth, it's like, you know, they learn things they didn't even know that they could have spoken about. So I, I think even from a messaging angle, that's, that's pretty critical. And you're right. They're less likely to jump ship from, from yeah. their own ship. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it's great to partner with, um, and to work for or partner with a CEO who gets marketing and who gets content and was bought into this idea because they know the importance of having a point of view, having opinions, being able to see the market and the industry and um, be able to uh, uh, really give it that extra oomph for the content that it needs in order to build up their own social presence, where it's not just, oh, I have a writer ghostwriting something for me and it's, it has my name on it. So it's better. It's like, no, I'm going to add my own kind of special magic uh, dust on top of this. And I'm even maybe going to direct it and, and, you know, be the originator of the idea for this content. Maybe I'll create some of it. Maybe I'll, I'll outsource some of it as well. But when you have someone who really gets that, then it just brings up another notch again, like it, the, the bar gets higher and it's just going to be more successful when, the CEO knows that and it's not just a chore. 
What drives you to take on these new projects? What What's the impetus behind, you know, <laughs> Swipe Files, Swipe Well? You've done a bunch of podcasts too. You're writing a book. Like what? Yeah. What makes you want to go zero to one on all these projects? Mm-hmm. Michael has always been start a SaaS company, start and run a SaaS company. That's always been my my end goal. Everything else as um, maybe like demeaning as this sounds is a means to an end. Um not just like a selfish, like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, step on people or left and right just to help get to like the platform that I want to get to. But again, think about like swipe files, the um the newsletter, the book, the courses, the other projects and random side projects that I do. I feel that those are all like reps and they're for me to learn for when I have my SAS coming on my own. But two, they're also the output of things that I'm learning in order to start and run a successful SaaS company. So, um, yeah, everything is just in the lens of like this end goal of trying to start and run a successful SaaS company that's that's growing, I'm profitable, and employs people. Um, that's that's the vision and the dream for me. Um, and everything else is is sort of subservient to that personally. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're doing it. How how long has that been your goal, or like where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, if we want to go all the way back, like I was never very entrepreneurial until uh, one of my friends in high school was very entrepreneurial, and uh, we were on a a little road trip to see some friends in college, and got to talking. You know, he's telling about all his plans. He's going to go do this, start this company, blah blah. blah. He wants to get on that. He watches, listens to this podcast, reads that book, and then he asked me what I want to do. I had a very traditional upbringing and really my worldview was very small. So my answer was a pretty quintessential freshly graduate of high school. Well, I just want to get a good job in like accounting or finance and start a family and retire one day. Like that was it. And he literally said, that's it. <laughs> like, that's all that you want to do. And honestly, there is nothing wrong with that. But that was the first time that anyone had ever challenged my my goals and um, my worldview and what do I want to do? I never really thought like, what do I want to do? It was more just, what do I have to do in order to survive? And so then he put me onto all these you know, books and podcasts. I started reading 4-Hour Workweek and that got me to Mixergy. And then I found the world of tech and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I actually love this. And just inspired so much in me that by the time I was around 19, I kind of knew like, all right, everything I'm going I'm to do is in order for me to start a company. I didn't know I wanted to start a SaaS company until, until I started working in SaaS, which is my first job out of college. And then I realized, like, this is awesome. I love this. It's the best business in the world. And this is like the uh, ikigai of all the things that I'm interested in and good at, could be paid for and want to work on day to day. Sorry, and, uh, what was that word? Uh, ikigai. Yeah. People pronounce it different ways. It's ikagi, ikigai. It's the like, uh, Venn diagram of four different intersections of, um, you know, what the world needs, uh, what you're good at, what you can get paid for, and um, you know, what's like personally fulfilling to you or something like that. So at least kind I've of seen those graphs. I've, I'd never, I never do that word. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so SaaS is just such a fun like intersection of all the things that I love and I'm interested in, like I'm good at on the marketing side of things. And so since around 19, I kind of knew like I wanted to start. A business that was my end goal, and then when I started working at SAS, like I was like, "This is it. This is what I want to do." 
That's cool. I, I resonate with that. I, I have this budding theory of entrepreneurship that everybody who is an entrepreneur like subjects subject subjects themselves to that has almost like an angel and a devil on their shoulder. And mm. it's like you need both of those. So it's like the devil would be like the chip on your shoulder. There's something in yeah. you that wants to prove oh, yeah. to people that you can do it. And <laughs> I, I think that's necessary. Uh people don't talk about that a lot. But then the other side is equally important, if not more so, it's that person who is supportive, but in a way that challenges you. It's not just supportive, like, oh, you're mm-hmm. you're good, you're cool. You know, it's like, no, I see more in you than you see in yourself. And yeah. it's like if you have those two pieces, I feel like that's the puzzle. If oh, you're interested yeah. in entrepreneurship, of course. I mean, there's other routes that you can take, but I see that commonality a lot of the times totally, people who start totally. their own things. Yeah, I've had a lot of people, you know, that initial friend was definitely that challenger who was like, dude, you could do so, so much more. And have you ever even thought about this or that or the, this other thing? Um, I was very subdued and shy and insecure um, and just had no idea even like how to think about myself. And that really unlocked this kind of exploration of what am I good at and what do I want to do? What am I interested in? And really just doing like a lot of um, kind of natural, you know, unintentional self-reflection that helped me butt into the person. Like I never would have thought I would be like the marketing and sales guy. I thought it maybe even be more like the engineer type. Now I know like I'm still an introvert, but I love talking to people. I love teaching. I love creating content. Um, and I don't have the brains to be an engineer. I'm just, I'm just not, I just don't. Um, I could probably learn it one day, like a little bit of it, but I'm never going to be the like backend database guy. That's just like super nerding out on architecture and all this kind of other stuff. Right. It's just, that's not the level that I'm at. Um, so it's, it's definitely been like a journey for me just coming into my own, um, having people like that, just being, okay, you can do this. No, bro, you can do it. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And then there's a chip on my shoulder, of course, for me, just wanted to prove it to myself and make it actually happen. But uh, there's probably like two, two or three core people in my life who have been those kind of challengers, encouragers, and doing the same thing as well, like alongside you where they're starting businesses and they're also entrepreneurial. Mm, Because then you can see it's possible too. Yeah. You see what's possible. You can trade notes. You get the inside scoop on what it's actually like and what's going on behind the scenes. Um, and it just makes it feel more real where then something that scared you before you were like, I have no idea how to do this or what happens or even what's involved. And someone else can go through and learn all those hard lessons for you and be like, oh, dude, it's not a big deal. All I have to do is X, Y, and Z. Okay, cool. Now I feel less anxiety about that and I have more confidence to go out and get after it. Yeah. yeah. Um, we might have to do a part two because I actually wanted to ask you a bunch about your book and the topics within that, mm, but yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have time. So we are, we're coming up on time, but I wanted to uh, make sure that there was a moment to ask if there's anything that we didn't talk about that you think we should have or anything you additionally wanted to mention. Shoot, man. Um, we, we've, we've really covered the, uh, a lot here. Um, I think, yeah, I'd love to talk about the book another time. That that maybe just a, a final note on that has just been the writing process, what that's like. Again, me being like the champion of treat content like it's your product and like a book is literally a product that is yeah. content. And it's been a grind to actually um, get out and do, but it's been a lot of fun as well. I'm about 80% done with the manuscript. So maybe next time we talk, I'll have a finished version and I can actually start uh, talking about it and um, and promoting it. Uh, this will come out in a couple months. Do you want to mention the book title? Sure. Yeah. The book is called Founding Marketing. Um, you can actually like go to the waitlist. It's at foundingmarketing.com. 
And um, it's a practical guide to early SaaS growth. Nice. And what else do you want to mention? Uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me at my personal site, Corey.co. Uh, this lists all the things that I'm working on, swipefiles.com, swipewell.app. Find me on Twitter at Corey Haynes Co. Um, I'm on Twitter the most. Amazing. Thank you so much. This conversation was super fun. All right. Thanks a bunch. 